we're going to be in Mark 14 today, verses 32 through 42. I'll just give away the the heart of the message right at the beginning. The heart of the message is this. God has a will, and all our happiness and joy is linked to submitting our will to his. So let's read Mark uh, 14, starting with verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, which means olive press. There are a lot of olives. This is on the Mount of Olives. A lot of olive groves that different people owned, and perhaps only one press or one or two presses. This is one of those presses. Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And Wednesday night at Go Deep at Big B Coffee, we'll go into this. There's much, much more than we're going to talk about today. The ancient letter of Barnabas has this line, the kingdom of Jesus is on the wood. That is, the wood of the cross. Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers who lost his life because of his commitment to Jesus, said the Lord has reigned from the tree. The sixth century bishop, Venenatius Fortunatus, wrote a poem that became a hymn. And with the line, God has reigned from the tree. So sometimes you see this represented artistically. There's, you know the difference between a cross and a crucifix, right? The cross looks like this. Jesus isn't on it. A crucifix has Jesus on, on the cross. But sometimes you'll see this idea um, artistically represented because Jesus is on the cross, but he's holding a scepter. What the artist wants to convey to us is the idea that the one who died for us reigns over us. And not only that, the artist wants us to realize that the cross was not the site of a historic defeat, but of the king's stunning victory over the powers and authorities. He reigns from the cross. He reigns from the cross, but he fights in the garden. When Jesus went to the cross, he was in control. He was speaking, he was pardoning, forgiving. But before he went to the cross, when he was in the garden, he was nearly overwhelmed. The war is won on the cross, but the night before, a battle raged in the garden. A battle of such intensity that we can't comprehend it. That it was a battle is clear to me. 
for one thing, I've noticed that Jesus sort of deploys his troops in three circles of defense, eight men on the outside, three men in the inner ring, and himself at the point of attack. He orders his men to keep watch or um, to stand guard. The word was used of soldiers on guard duty. Their assignment, Jesus tells them, is to watch and pray, or that could be translated, watch even praying. They watch by praying. There's more to prayer than most of us have begun to realize. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. Now, he may have taken those three because they were his most trusted followers. They, they were the ones who were with him when he raised Jairus' daughter back to life, the only ones he took with him. They were the only ones he took with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were with him on the Mount of Olives just previously, a few days earlier, uh, with uh, Simon's brother Andrew. Now he takes them with him into the heart of the garden and into the heat of the battle. There may be another reason he took these three, though. Um, not long before this, James and John were maneuvering for position, and they secretly asked Jesus to make them his top lieutenants. And he asked them at the time, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Do you have what it takes? Are you ready to face the trial? And they self-confidently said, yep, we can do it. We can drink that cup. That very night, Peter, full of himself, said to Jesus, your other disciples may fail you, but I will not. Even if it costs me my life, I'll be true to you. Jesus took those three men with him into the garden. And there we find out that their faith in themselves was misplaced. In the garden, we learn something about Jesus that you might miss just reading the rest of the Gospels. He was not a man of steel. When he was incarnated, he didn't come as Superman. He came as one of us. In the garden, he became deeply distressed. The word means amazed. And so think confused, stunned, and troubled. It's an odd word, not used often, very emphatic, has the idea of his brain just being overloaded. So he's going through this. He turns to his friends and he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now you read that in Greek, it's very terse. <clears throat> my soul is grief surrounded. It's just one word, unto death. Unto death doesn't mean he wants to die. Nothing could be further from the truth. But that he's not sure he can survive this. His soul is a boat in an ocean of grief and it has sprung leaks everywhere. When you're afraid, <clears throat> or when you're in despair, you must not forget that your master has gone deeper into the darkness than you have, and he did not give in. And his spirit, if you belong to him, now lives in you. After telling his friends to keep watch, he goes a little farther and he falls to the ground. So Jews normally prayed standing up with their eyes lifted toward heaven. He falls to the ground. The terrifying ocean of grief is rising so quickly it threatens to drown him. He prays that the hour may pass, literally be carried away from him. 
God doesn't answer that prayer the way he wants. In fact, in a short time, the hour won't be carried away, but he will be carrying, same root word in Greek, a cross. He says, Abba. Now that's an Aramaic word, which is one of the reasons we know Jesus spoke Aramaic. Abba, the intimate word for father, Papa. Everything is possible for you. You can do anything. So take this cup from me. The cup is a staple of Old Testament imagery. Now, once again, if, we're, if we just skip over the Old Testament, we're going to miss all kinds of stuff in the New. Uh, it is the cup of judgment that God's enemies must drink, and it causes them to stagger. In his horror of it, Jesus asked the Father to take it from him. And didn't Isaiah speak of the cup of judgment being removed? Perhaps the Father would take the cup from him. But then Jeremiah speaks of those who didn't do anything to deserve this terrible cup, but who must drink it anyways. In the garden, Jesus enters. You see what's happening? He's entering into the same uncertainty that you and I so often experience. He knows that he's going to Jerusalem to die. But might there be a reprieve, a postponement? Maybe next Passover, not this one. When he gets up from prayer, I, I don't think he's any clearer than he was when he began. The Father has apparently not answered him either way. You and I have gone through that, but did you realize that Jesus went through it too? And in the midst of the most dreadful circumstances. Preachers often say something like this. I've heard them say it. Jesus took his dearest friends with him into the garden and looked to them for support in his trial. That doesn't seem to fit the facts, though. For one thing, as soon as he told them he was overwhelmed with grief, what did he do? He left them. He didn't wait for them to comfort him. For another, the disciples, they didn't grasp what was happening. They didn't share his vision. They weren't capable of giving him what he needed. I don't think he went to the garden to be with his friends, but to be with his father, to receive comfort from him, maybe a temporary reprieve. He was hoping for comfort. What he found in the garden was horror and crushing anxiety. When Jesus got up from prayer and walked a few paces back to his disciples, they were sleeping. So I imagine that the pace, the adrenaline, the intensity of that evening and of the previous four days was just too much for them. When Jesus told them to watch and pray so they wouldn't enter into temptation, he was telling them to do the same thing he was doing. See, he was discipling them right to the very end. Jesus went back to pray two more times. When he returned the final time, something had happened. He had passed through the horror and come out on the other side, and he had come out strong. Luke tells us an angel appeared to him to strengthen him, not to soothe him, not to console him, but to strengthen him, and probably with a message from the Father. See, that's what angels do. The word angel means messenger. After receiving the message, Jesus knew there was not going to be a reprieve. There was no change of plans. The battle was before him, but the Father had given him what he needed to face it, to do what must be done and to prevail. 
Now, what do we learn about God from Jesus in the garden? So after all, that's what we're, this whole series has been about, the God and Father of Jesus Christ, what we learn about God. Think about some things we've learned so far. We've learned that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What an important thing to hold on to in the dark hours before the cross. There's no darkness in my father. We've learned that God is a father. He loves, delights in, and wants the best for his children. He pays attention to them. When at first Jesus received no answer in the garden, he continued to pray because he knew the father was paying attention. He knew it. We learn that God is always working and he wants his children to work with him. He was working that night in Gethsemane. He wasn't on vacation and Jesus knew it. We learned that God rewards those who seek and serve him. We learned that God is a giver, the giver, and a forgiver, the forgiver. We've seen his deep affection for his children, how he is unwilling for them to be alienated from him. He goes to great lengths goes to a cross to bring his children back. On that terrible night, Jesus knew all these things, and it was because he knew these things that he went to Gethsemane in the first place to be with and to hear from his Father. So what do we learn from Jesus about his Father God in Gethsemane? Look at verse 35. He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. If possible. Remember earlier in the Gospels, a man comes to Jesus who's got a son, and his son is demonized, and life is just unbelievable. It's terrible. And he says to Jesus, if it's possible for you to do something, and Jesus stops him and says, if it's possible... Everything is possible to him who believes. Has Jesus come to doubt that in the garden? No. When he prays that the hour might pass from him, if possible, he knows that nothing is impossible for his father. He can make an hour pass because time is silly putty in his hands. God can stretch an hour the way he did with Joshua. He can compress it or he can make it disappear altogether. We must understand Jesus' prayer in this way. Father, if it's possible for this hour to pass from me and still accomplish your will, then make it so. It's the same one in the next verse. He prays that the cup might pass from him. Can his father do that? Of course he can. But the question is, what is his father's will? What is best? See, Jesus knew that his father, the one true God, has a will. That is, that he chooses that some things happen and other things do not happen. Knowing that is fundamental to write belief about God. He's not indifferent to what happens in his creation. See, it's his creation, his great work, and he cares very much what happens to it. We are his creation, and he cares very much that we turn out right. That is, 
good and beautiful. Therefore, he chooses some things happen and chooses that other things should not happen. When we pray, as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're asking God to make happen or prevent from happening what he chooses. And we're joining him in that. This whole thing about God's will can really be tricky. Some people think staying in God's will is tough, that it's almost impossible. It's a tightrope, and God's people must be tightrope walkers. Otherwise, they move a fraction of an inch to the left or to the right, and they'll fall, and they'll either get caught by a net or crash to the ground, depending on their theological persuasion. So I don't know which is your theological persuasion, but I'll tell you what, that image is all wrong. God's will is not a tightrope. It's usually wide enough to encompass any number of choices. We can go up or down, back or forward, wherever we desire and still be in his will. I can take this job, move to this place. I can learn Spanish or Italian or neither. I can play golf or read a book tomorrow and still be in his will. But sometimes his will narrows to the place where we can only choose one thing and remain in it. Forgive or not forgive. Do one and you stay in his will. Do the other and you leave it. Love your neighbor or hate your neighbor. Bless or gossip. God is, God's will is very narrow in these areas. I was once on a lake in Quebec. It, it, was, it had been a river, but it had been dammed. And it was now about a mile wide and about 15 miles long. And for most of its length, you could go east, you could go west, Anywhere you chose within that mile and stay on the lake. But there was a strait near the north end of the lake that was very narrow. I'd say less than two boat lengths. And if you went a few feet to the left or to the right, you would run aground. And God's will is just like that. Most of the time, there's plenty of room for us to make choices and remain in his will. But sometimes there's room only to do one thing. We get into trouble when we don't know which place we're in, the narrow one or the wide one. We're, we're in the long, wide, spacious part of his will. We can get the idea that there's only one choice we can make, or we'll leave his will. Should I take this job or not? It's always the big things we think. If I make the wrong choice, my life will be ruined. God's will frequently leaves room for both choices and a dozen more. But then we come to the narrow place. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And we think what he did was so terrible. There's room for me to hate him, to talk about him, to withhold forgiveness from him. But there's no room there at all. And we will run aground outside the will of God. If we don't understand where we are, we'll tiptoe when we should be dancing and meander when we should be holding the line. Because we don't understand God's will, we get the idea that spiritual maturity means having no will of our own. That idea has even got into our music. And, and what it otherwise is a very good hymn, the songwriter says, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. That's not what God wants at all. 
It would ruin everything. God made us in his image with the will of our own, and he wants it to become more our own, not less. Right now, our will is often manipulated by others. People pay men and women big money to manipulate your will. And our will is browbeaten by desire and by fear. God wants us to rise above that and own it. He also wants us to use our will to choose what's good, just like he does. See, that is the principal thing happening in your life. The principal thing is God is shaping you so that you choose the good every time. That's why you're here. The world we live in is the right environment with its myriad of circumstances and trillions of choices for forming creatures who choose love over selfishness, reality over delusion, truth over lies, people over things. That is, people who become just like Jesus. God is building a vast community of love and grace where people choose good every time. And since the only way for that to happen is for us to choose it, God does not want to violate or especially eliminate our will. Jesus didn't give up his will in the garden. He submitted to his Father's will. He didn't pray, Father, I have no will. He prayed, nevertheless, not what I will but what you will. How could Jesus, facing this horror, pray like that? How could he say, nevertheless? He could pray like that because he knew his father. He knew what his father was doing, making that vast community of love and grace through him. He knew that he's light all the way through. He knew that he loved him and us. He knew that nothing can stop his father from bringing good, from making everything good again. When we know the Father, we can pray like that. Father God, I so want this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Father God, I don't want this. Please make it go away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Those kinds of prayers transform people. They make us strong, loving, capable, true, but we'll never be able to pray nevertheless and mean it until we know who God is. Nevertheless is not fatalism. Nevertheless is not throwing up your hands. Jesus doesn't say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will, and then stop praying. He prays again and again. Saying nevertheless is not giving in, it's jumping in with both feet to do the will of God. Jesus had his own will, and he used it many times, just like we do. But unlike us, he didn't use his will to go contrary to the will of his father. That was the choice Adam made in a different garden. Isn't it interesting? Here we are back in a garden, the same choice. 
the Father's will or not? Will I submit to the Father's will? Adam made a different choice. And that's the way to ruin and spiritual death. But Jesus trusted his Father, trusted him, even in the darkness of the garden. Adam was in a bright garden in the cool of the morning. Jesus was in a dark garden in the heat of battle. And even when an answer didn't come, even when the thing he most wanted to avoid was staring him in the face, he knew his father and he trusted him and that's why he could pray nevertheless. The way forward for us is to trust our father and submit our will to his. That's what's going on right now in your life and always, always. If you're aware of some area in your life where you're refusing God's will or insisting on your own, knowing it goes against what God wants, then you've run aground spiritually. And you are on a reef. And the winds of life are going to tear your faith apart. You'll make no more progress. That's the, I, people think, I can go against God's will. I can know that I do that. And then sooner or later, I'll just get past that. The only way getting past that is to go back and submit to the will of God. His will is good. He knows what's best. He knows what he's doing. And you can trust him. All right, let's pray. I'm going to give you a minute, a minute to submit to the will of God in your life. To say, God, I will do your will. When I know it, I will do it. God, make us people who know that your will is best, who choose it not out of a sense that we can't do anything else, but because we want it. And I ask you, Lord, to do this. Make us those people in Jesus' name. Let's stand together and we'll sing.